If you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 3, and we will be looking at verses 28 to 30. Uh, It's our general practice here to go verse by verse through books of the Bible. We've probably done that um, about 96% of the time over the last 33 years. Um, and, uh, And most of the time, it just seems like the most natural thing to do. But then when you do that, you, you come across passages like the one we come across this morning. Oh, lovely. Let's talk about the unpardonable sin. Um, uh, that'll, that'll, that'll make for a nice Sunday. Um, but there it is. Uh, there it is. And it, um, it's uh, probably an important thing to talk about because if you ask around, and probably many of you, not probably, I know, many of you, you know your own heart. Uh, uh, many Christians go through long phases where these verses absolutely terrorize them. Uh, and for good reason, because the wording is almost unbelievably threatening and somber. Um, so that if you, if you believe that you are being spoken of in a text like this, this text will instantly drain all of the hope out of you um, and, and really offer nothing um, to fill it back up. So it's, as we'll see, it's extremely important that you don't misunderstand the text. On the other hand, it's an extremely difficult passage to explain helpfully. Um, one of the, one of the uh, most significant Dutch theologians of the 20th century, a guy by the name of G.C. Burkhauer, has got this massive volume on doctrine, uh, the dogmatics, Studies in Dogmatics, the volume on sin. He spends 31 pages on the unpardonable sin. And if you were hoping that he would help you uh, get a grasp on exactly what you'd want to say about it, you'd be wrong. I read through that for about probably the third or fourth time and found him equally unhelpful uh, to the times that I'd been uh, uh, asking him for a little help before. But he does. He does review the, the, the entire, since the Reformation, the entire interpretive history of looking at uh, verses like this, which is, you know, pretty helpful to know that at least you're in good company. Uh, but we're going to do our best uh, to talk about this in a... Uh, in a helpful way where that real warning is involved because definitely this text is designed to warn somebody, to warn people. However, it is, it is also not designed to terrorize the people of God. And it has quite a history, as we'll make note of, of terrorizing um, the people of God. And hopefully we'll be able to help with some of you who may... Uh, wrestle with that. Let's stand together. Mark 3, verses 28 to 30. Uh, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. Whatever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, He has an unclean spirit. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray that you would establish our hearts in you. Establish them such that we would be able to, as we have already been doing this morning, 
we'd be able to sing and make melody in our hearts to you, acknowledging your glory. That we would awaken the dawn of each day in praise to you, noting how the heavens declare your glory. That we would move through life giving you thanks amongst your, the people of this world, that we would sing your praises among the nations. For you are indeed great above the heavens. You tell us to picture your steadfast love as spread out above all the heavens, so great, so vast, so amazing. You teach us to think of your words as so faithful that to measure that faithfulness would give us a stack of faithfulness that rose all the way up into the clouds. And when we think of you, your steadfast love and your great faithfulness, we ask that you would be exalted, O Lord, above the heavens, and that your glory would be seen over all the earth, that we as your beloved ones, that you would deliver us that you would save us by your right hand, that you would answer us when we call you in the midst of all of our trials and tribulations and trouble, discouragements. Lord, it is your mission to spread that glory over all the earth. And so we do pray in behalf of Pastor Don and Hete and Melanie as they are down in Thomas on Charlie with uh, church leaders from all around that region trying to encourage them in their faith and in particularly in living out their faith in their own homes, in their own relationships. I pray that your blessing would be upon uh, Don and Hete and Melanie as they uh, share the messages that you've given them to take there as they interact with those church leaders that the leaders in that region would return home mightily encouraged. And we pray for similar things all about the globe where your church is working. Some areas like India, where your church is spreading rapidly, and other areas like North Korea, where your tiny church is terribly oppressed. But how encouraging to realize, as we did this morning in reading Isaiah 51 2, that starting out with one man, Abraham. You chose one, and you multiplied him into hundreds of millions of followers of yours around the world, hundreds of millions of those in the seed of Abraham. Lord, may you go with us as your church, wherever you have planted us, here in the culture in America and churches all around the world, go with us and trample the enemies of your gospel and of your people under your feet by bringing about the conversion of souls and at the end of the age, bringing about a new heaven and a new earth For you are sure to return, as we sang. You are indeed 
coming soon. Come and meet us in the midst of this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. We are becoming disciples. Disciples, think about the eternal realm in a way that differs really pretty vastly from our culture at large. American culture sort of has two broad ways of thinking about the eternal. Uh, One is absolutely dismissively. Uh, That would be the, the official, more or less, intellectual view of America, university level, the kind of programming that you might see on PBS, where ironically enough, Americans tend to officially embrace uh, the worldview of, of Marxism, right? We embrace dialectical materialism where sort of there's some sort of material progression being made mindlessly, and so the eternal realm is simply a myth. It's simply a myth that human creatures in the midst of that dialectical materialism made up and... Uh, and now we, we have to try to talk ourselves and educate ourselves back out of it. Uh, and so don't worry about eternity. It's just absolutely a myth that we've invented. So 50, 52 years ago, uh, when the Beatles first broke up, the first big hit from a single guy out of the Beatles was John Lennon. And, and he wrote about this. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. There it is. There it is. He was just expounding uh, that worldview. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Problem is, in America over the last 52 years... You know what we've proven? Not as easy as you think. Not as easy as you think. So at the level of popular culture, only once in a while do you meet a character uh, and so forth in the, in the face of death where some would just say, yeah, I don't really believe in life after death. You know, some really tough Clint Eastwood type might say that from time to time. But for the most part, in the most part, in all of our storytelling, Here's how we view eternity. Oh, it's a better place. Somebody dies, what happens to them? They go to a better place. What else could happen? When you die, you go to a better place. Doesn't really matter who you are. Doesn't really matter what you've done. Certainly doesn't matter what you believe. When you die, you go to a better place. With the possible exception of Adolf Hitler. We got him in hell largely by himself. Uh, as far as you could tell uh, from the way we talk about things. Pretty much everybody else, pretty much everybody else, they just go to a better place. Um, Now, Jesus does not have that sort of rosy view of the eternal. Jesus has a markedly dualistic view of the eternal. And he states it from time to time really boldly and categorically among the clearer uh, statements of his view would be John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all of those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to a resurrection of life and those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. Whoa. 
And elsewhere in Jesus, you will hear that the one group is a lot larger than the other. And of those two, the better place group is the smaller. That's how Jesus talks about the eternal realm. Um, And in our text for this morning, we find Jesus drifting over to speak about the eternal realm a bit. Um, Our text this morning mirrors really nicely a summary statement that Paul made in Romans 11 about our thinking about God in the big, broad picture. Tremendously helpful statement to think about. Romans 11, verse 22, Paul wrote, Note the kindness and the severity of God. Note the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you if, or provided, you may continue in or remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. In Mark's version of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit language, you have this same dualism set up. Behold the kindness, or as the King James had it, the goodness, and the severity of God. Listen again to how Mark records Jesus' words. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemes, blasphemies they utter. Behold, the kindness, goodness of God. He's tremendously forgiving. Behold, the kindness of God. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But then, and the severity of God. But, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. What's he talking about? Well, he tells us in verse 30. This is a warning to those who are are saying, he has an unclean spirit. Well, they don't even really mean to be talking about theological things. They're, They're actually just plain first century politics within the Roman Empire. That's the only reason they really are talking about that sort of thing with Jesus. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But that's where this comes up. In other words, they're speaking more spiritually than they realized. Um, They're speaking more spiritually than they realized. For they were saying, or because, he said this because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. State our thesis for this morning this way. There is an attitude toward Jesus that leads to eternal death. There's an attitude toward Jesus that leads to eternal death. Well, so, but the text talks about the blasphemy of the spirit. Yes, but in the incident that that rises out of, the spirit isn't even mentioned. All they say is, the Christ casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub. That's what brings the accusation. They didn't say anything about the Spirit, not consciously. They didn't mean to, but they did. But they did. Now that makes it more troubling and not less. 
We'll take up uh, just three points this morning. Um, number one, there is a promise of forgiveness. Uh, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now, the commentary, especially the better commentators that are paying careful attention, they'll point out this really isn't a statement at all on how forgiveness works. Uh, that is, Jesus is not talking about forgiveness here. Um, he does, incidentally, uh, mention forgiveness and, and talks about it in one sense very positively. But really, all that's going on in verse 28 is a volleyball set. The ball is being set for the ball to be spiked down onto the floor of warning. This is not an uplifting couple of verses. This is an ominously threatening, dark, warning passage. That's what it is. That's what it is. It starts out almost unrealistically positive, though. Right? There is forgiveness. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter. Now, if that's all you had, you might get the impression that Jesus is saying, don't worry about sin. You got nothing to worry about. They'll all be forgiven. There's no conditionality mentioned there. You know, all sins, all blasphemies, all forgiven, so therefore, not to worry. Not to worry. Well, that's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, there are sins that can be forgiven through the means provided in the gospel. And their sin that will never be forgiven. Um, truly, he says truly, great emphasis, truly. First of 13 times he uses that in, in Mark's gospel. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and all the blasphemies they utter. Now, if you know your New Testament, you know the condition upon which that happens. Uh, you know, broadly, faith in Christ, but more, more narrowly, right? The John, 1 John uh, 1, 9. Whenever I think of 1 John 1, 9, I think of my, as I've mentioned many times before, my middle school, Sunday school teacher, Kurt Messamore, who had no business teaching junior high boys, but nobody wanted us. Uh, nobody wanted to teach us. And we didn't, there was, our, our, our church at this time was sort of uh, overflowing itself, so there was no place for junior high boys to meet. During nice weather, we met in the, in the church bus. Um, and then in cold weather, though, we got permission, we met in a, a kind of a third-rate dime store that was next to the Wonder Lake Bible Church in, in Wonder Lake, Illinois, called Robiasons. Uh, Mrs. Robiason did not come to our church. I don't think she went to church at all, but her boys uh, came to some of the uh, events at church, and so she had us off place, and so when approached, uh, she let us, the store wasn't open on Sunday, so they gave our teacher a key, and Mr. Messamore would go in there, and it was wonderful, because he bought us each a can of pop every week, and then put the money on the cash register on the way out for for her with a little tip for her. Um, but as I say, uh, Mr. Messamore, he was no teacher. Um, so he would work his way through our little quarterly book, mostly just reading it uh, and sort of trying to, you know, get us through to the, to the end, which he, which he did. But then, and so I don't remember a single lesson. I don't remember a single lesson that came out of that quarterly. 
I have no idea what we ever talked about. I have no memory of what he read us that day, which is kind of discouraging. However, however, I keep mentioning him over and over and over and over again because I remember how he ended class every time, and I'll never forget it as long as I live. He would suddenly put his book down and say, I remember, boys. Remember, boys, if you know Jesus, you look, No matter what you do, if you confess your sins, he'll be faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And his eyes would fill with tears. He says, you know, boys, I ignored Jesus for more than 50 years. And I came and I asked Jesus to forgive me. And I know he did. He forgave all my sins. And it was a wonder to him. It was a wonder to him. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the conditionality just in front of that is a little bit more intimidating, and we probably needed to hear that one as well. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, You have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses you from all sin. Jesus is assuming that, all that conditionality when he says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be given the children of man and whoever blasphemes, and all the blasphemies that they utter. They will be forgiven. See, See that conditionality in in 1 John 1, 7 sort of includes the presupposition of how Jesus puts it to Nicodemus, right? You've got to be born again. You've got to be born again. Because you have to be born again to walk in the light as he is in the light. And it's, it's those people that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, no matter what you've done, as we'll see and argue later, no matter what you've done. Fifty-some years of sins, Kurt Messamore, and he forgives them all. And Mr. Messamore never got over it, and he showed us that with great clarity. For I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. Whatever blasphemies they utter, if we confess those sins, if we believe in Christ, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, those are the conditionalities. But still, there it is. God is, behold the the goodness of God. Behold the kindness of God. Behold God is prone, wired to forgive. He sent his own son for the sake of forgiving. But secondly, there is a warning as to an eternal sin. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. What is he talking about? Well, I can tell you, as I said, don't ask G.C. Burkauer. He didn't have much helpful to say, though he's one of the more gifted theologians, evangelical theologians of the entire 20th century. He just tells you, he just shoots holes in anything you try to say. Uh, and then finishes the chapter. Okay, there we go. I shot holes through everything, and now we'll move on. Um, which isn't terribly helpful if you're, if you're looking for him to uh, give you a little help. But a couple things that you can say uh, with confidence. First, we can know exactly what prompts Jesus to say this, because he tells us. Mark tells us. Mark makes an editorial comment for us 
after Jesus' really intimidating words about an eternal sin, Mark tells us exactly why he said it. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So whatever this eternally damning thing is, it's tied up with what they said and why they said it and how they said it. It's all tied up in that. You can know that for sure. It's not some slip of the tongue. It's not, it's not a whole bunch of things. It's tied up in that. And so as you analyze that, you want to be sure that you're never involved in anything that moves in that direction, because that is a very, very dangerous place to be. They had said of Jesus, he's possessed by Beelzebub, and by the spirit of the demons, he casts out demons. So there, that's what they said. Because he was saying he has an unclean spirit. The second thing that you can see here very, very clearly is in this life, we are constantly dealing with persons and matters of eternal consequence. Say, well, that's pretty. Um, Oh, but that's not obvious at all. We never think we're doing that. In American public discourse, you are never dealing with anything of eternal consequence. There is no mention of anything dealing with eternal consequence ever. Ever. We are given the impression that the biggest things that ever happen anywhere are politics and sports. There. Once you've covered politics and sports, you've covered all of the big, important ground. Uh, There are no persons and there are no issues that are related to the eternal. Um, They just aren't. No no smart people uh, think that. Nobody on these panels, on cable news, thinks that. Nobody at the editorial board of our great newspapers thinks that. So it's just not. It's just not. It's no big deal. Uh, The big stuff, the big stuff is, is, is politics, sports, and all that spiritual stuff is really iffy way off to the side. And so the big things, are that that's the CNN stuff and the Fox News stuff and the uh, ABC Nightly News stuff, editorial page for the Wall Street Journal stuff, the editorial page for the New York Times stuff. That's the big stuff. Those are the angles where the great matters are being talked about. And Jesus is saying to you, And I, don't you believe it. Don't you believe it. You are dealing with God and eternity. You are dealing with sin, forgiveness, or unforgiveness. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. He is guilty of an eternal sin. As Russ read from the parallel account over in Matthew 12, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. 
Now, as I mentioned to you earlier, and certainly last week, was we, we just labeled what the scribes from Jerusalem were doing as pathetic propaganda. Pathetic propaganda. They're not really thinking about God or eternity or the truth or much of anything. They're thinking about Jesus is getting too popular. We are going to tap that down. Here is our methodology for tapping that down. We are going to throw this accusation at him. He is possessed of the devil, and he's casting out the devil by the power of the devil. So there! So there! And many, many people said to themselves, yeah, they're probably right. Most people that paid attention. Yeah, that's probably what's going on here. (laughs) That's a good thing we got scribes, because I was starting to sort of lean in that crazy Jesus direction there for a little bit, but then the scribes from Jerusalem came down, straightened me out a little bit. Uh, Very, very helpful what they said. No, not very, very helpful what they said. Pathetic propaganda what they said. But if you know anything about our culture, you'll know this. We're no better at recognizing pathetic propaganda than they were. We're wired to embrace the same kind of thing that they are. Right? Um, In our own day, we have all kinds of people who tell us They're tremendously devout. They're devout. Now, the Jesus of the Bible, Jesus of the Bible, no. No, you can't, I mean, no. You can be devout and know that the Jesus of the Bible, especially as like mediated through something like the Apostle Paul, transphobic, homophobic? No. No, very, very bad. Very, very narrow. Jesus of the Bible seems to always be clinging to the binary, the gender binary. Well, that's yesterday. That's no. No, no, no. He's out. The truly devout, they just reject all of that. Jesus is Is there any danger in that? Any danger in getting on board with that? Any analogy between getting on board with that and getting on board with, well, maybe he did cast them out by the power of the devil. Who knows? But I'm probably going to probably stick with the majority on that one. And then Jesus labels this thing that you're doing as far more significant than you would have thought. He warns. All kinds of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, tied up with this kind of pathetic propaganda, given, received, never forgiven. You might get yourself in a place where you are guilty of eternal sin. Thirdly, and this is where I put thirdly, uh, there's a peril of misdiagnosing yourself by means of this passage. Um, Especially given the condition of the the first John passages that I used. Uh, If you imagine that If you try to harmonize them this way, you'll run into trouble very quickly, right? Um, So if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Well, unless, of course, you've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, and then you're a goner. So, yeah, 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 you know, thanks for coming, thanks for sharing, but you're still eternally lost. There you go. 
That's how we tend to think about it. That's how we tend to take this passage and apply it to ourselves. So, they, so there, oh, we, that wonderful promise in First John. However, when it comes to this sin, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't work. It doesn't matter. Uh, if you walk in the light, as He is in the light, the blood of Jesus is. You have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses you from all sin. Unless you committed this sin, of course, then all bets are off, and you're gone. You're ruined. You're a goner. I was just talking to my uh, great niece this last Friday. She's now in her 20s, but she, was, she shared, because I told her what passage we were going to be sharing on Sunday. And she said, oh, yeah. And I was 11, 12, and 13. Just lived in absolute despair for three, a couple of years. Time she's 11 to 13, thinking, I've committed the unpardonable sin. I'm going to hell no matter what I do now. It's over. Try to forget about it. Try to think about something else, and it just comes back around to you. Like, no, you're a goner. You're going to hell. It's over. You have committed an eternal sin. Game over. I mentioned before, too, when I was in high school, I was in something called the Bible Memory Program. Sunday afternoons, I it was like eight, ten verses a week that you memorized, which when you're in high school, isn't very difficult to do. Uh, now it would be a little trickier uh, to memorize that quickly. But then, not, not very tricky. And so Sunday afternoon, I'd go down and I would recite my verses to Mrs. Kathy Froze. Uh, Kathy was a mother of three or four kids, and um, uh, she was part of our little church there in Fort St. James. Her, hundred, her husband's name was Henry Henry ran a little men's store in Fort St. James, and Henry was certainly uh, one of my favorite people, one of the nicest guys you would ever meet, very involved in our church. And one day I come home, and there is Mrs. Froze just weeping at our kitchen table, talking to my mom. And I find out eventually that it's because Henry has kind of dropped back into Deep depression. Why? Because Henry keeps thinking that he's committed the unpardonable sin. And all of the hope drains out of him and he he hardly can get up and go to work. What difference does it make? I'm damned. And it's over. Now, the most famous person that I know of in the history of the church who really wrestled with that was John Bunyan. Him for between 18 months and two years. Um, and uh, and I've, I've read you, I'm not going to reread it, I've read you some of the things that he wrote about that in those days and how overwhelming it was to him. But the verse of Scripture... That, that helped him break that cycle at the close of those two years. He eventually would write a whole book about it, which is it's a Puritan way. Puritans love to take, a, they take one verse and then write somewhere between 200 and 600 pages about it. Uh, so this one's relatively short. Uh, uh, Bunyan, Bunyan got great help from John 6.37. John 6.37, and he, wrote, and he wrote 240 pages on John 6.37, and near the end he has a little section on the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and he, and he gives six arguments against it. We're not going to repeat those. We're just going to use... He, 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 here's the title he gave to his book. What a, great, what a great title for this text. If you think about John... 637, meditate on it a little bit, as Bunyan did. Here, he, This was his title. Come and welcome Jesus Christ. Come and welcome Jesus Christ. So here's how Bunyan thought about this, I think accurately, helpfully, takes out the apparent contradiction in our, in our text, in our context, uh, as we'll come back to right at the end, really bears this interpretation out, this way of thinking about it out. So here's, here's the text. 
All which the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one coming to me, I will not cast out. Ah. That second little phrase is got, in, in, in Greek you put two different words for negatives together. Ume. So ume is a way of saying, ume, no way. Ume, no way. He'd ever cast me out. So here's his title, Come. And Bunyan, Bunyan saw this. He said, So if I had really blasphemed the Holy Spirit, how could I possibly so desperately want to come to Jesus? And his answer was, well, you couldn't. Seven verses later, John tells you, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Well, well, I want to come to Jesus. I'm coming to Jesus. I, I worry about coming to Jesus all day. I've been trying to come to Jesus all day, every day, for a year and a half. I'd give anything to come to Jesus. Well, then the Father must be drawing you. Or as this text has it, you must have been given to come. Well, that's good to know. So now I've come. And then the second half of the verse. And he who comes, he will no way be cast out. Yeah, but what about the eternal sin thing? Well, pretty simple. If you, those people don't come. Look in the context. The story doesn't go on to say when Jesus said, you've committed eternal sin, the scribes don't say, oh no! Oh no! Oh no, please Jesus, no! Give us an No! No! They're not worried about that. They're not worried about that. They don't care what Jesus thinks. There's no oh no about them. I don't care what he thinks. Jesus warns our culture. We don't say, oh no! Oh, good grief. We don't care what homophobic, non-binary Jesus, or binary Jesus thinks. Come on. No, we don't care. It's the majority view in the first century. It's the majority view now. But when you hear people flippantly talking about Jesus in our culture, it just doesn't seem to cost anybody anything. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to be a dangerous thing at all. A text like this reminds you, it might be way more dangerous than you think. There might be things unfolding before your eyes that you would never guess. You know this for sure. Along these paths, casting out, you're casting out demons by the power of demons. You're in the neighborhood of what Jesus labels an eternal sin. This is in the Bible to tell, tell people, watch yourself in this rebellious world. But on the other hand, but don't misdiagnose yourself. If you have a desire in your heart to come to the Lord Jesus, if you can confess your sins, then for sure you will find him faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you can still confess your sins, you haven't committed this sin. As Bunyan says, otherwise you'd never come. 
but you have come. And you will never be turned away. No way. For you have the promise of Jesus. Oh, no, no. If you come, if you come, I will no way, no way cast you out. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, may we see the spiritual danger in our culture. May we see your severity as it threatens a culture like ours, our flippancy, our confidence, our arrogance, the darkness that pervades spiritual darkness of our time and place, messaging, culture in deep, dark decay and decline. May we see it for all of its danger. Well, at the same time, remaining hopeful that if we can come to you, it's only because you've given us that desire. And you give that desire to save and not to destroy. And if we come to Jesus Christ by your leading and guidance, we have a sure promise. And you keep all your promises as we prayed this morning. Your faithfulness stacks all the way up into the sky. So when you say, you will in no way cast out, you will in no way cast out. We praise you for such promises. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would enable us to be among those who are found in the coming week, walking in the light as you are in the light, fellowshipping with you, and enjoying the assurance that the blood of Jesus, your Son, cleanses us from all sin. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.